Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Fellow citizens, I'm again called upon by the voice of my country to execute the functions of its chief magistrate. When the occasion proper for it shall arrive, I shall endeavor to impress the high sense I entertain of this distinguished honor and of the confidence which has been reposed in me by the people of United America. Previous to the execution of any official act of the President, the Constitution requires an oath of office. This oath I am now about to take, and in your presence, that if it shall be found during my administration of the government, I have in any instance violated willingly or knowingly the injunctions thereof. I may, besides incurring constitutional punishment, be subject to the upbraidings of all who are now witnesses of the present solemn ceremony. With 135 words, the shortest inaugural address to date, George Washington assumed the mantle of president for the second time on March 4, 1793. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we delve into the second term, there are some loose ends to tie up as Washington and his cabinet wrap up the first term of office. Thus, we're going to start this episode by catching up on the progress of the federal city, then take a brief look at where things stand in the political realm, as well as personally for the president, before returning to the 1793 inauguration. Sound good? Let's get to it then. As you'll recall from episode 1.8, when we last checked in on the federal city, Washington had decided the location of the new capital in 1791, a perceived unilateral action that invited criticism from some corners of the government. Further questioning of Washington's private interests playing a role in his public decision-making came about when the Residence Act was amended to include the city of Alexandria in Virginia as part of the new federal district. As Washington and his family owned land in and around Alexandria, the amendment, while allowing for Alexandria's inclusion, did contain a provision prohibiting the, quote, erection of the public buildings otherwise than on the Maryland side of the River Potomac. Once the site was selected, the next challenges were more logistical in nature. First, the new district would need someone on the ground to manage operations, as Washington couldn't be expected to handle all the details from Philadelphia. The Residence Act of 1790 provided for three commissioners to supervise the work. As such, Washington appointed Daniel Carroll, Thomas Johnson, and David Stewart for the task. As we discussed previously, though there was no city there at the time, what was to become the federal district wasn't completely unpopulated, and some of the present owners of the land didn't necessarily want to move. However, first working through the commissioners, then coming in person in March 1791, Washington was able to negotiate and ultimately acquire rights to the land needed for development. With land came the need for surveying, in order to mark off the district's boundary before laying out the urban grid. Washington, an old hand at surveying himself, issued a proclamation on March 30, 1791, establishing the starting point for the boundary survey to begin at, quote, Jones's Point, the upper cape of Hunting Creek in Virginia. 
Tasked with completing the survey was Major Andrew Ellicott, who worked with a team that included someone who, like I did, you might have learned about in grade school. The surveying team included an African-American astronomer by the name of Benjamin Banneker. Now the inspiration behind the naming of many schools, parks, and streets, Banneker at the time was a self-taught man who was brought onto the team to make astronomical observations in order to determine the exact location for the starting point of the survey. He would not be on the team for long, leaving in April 1791 due to illness, but he would become a legend and would be the subject of numerous urban legends that, while complimentary and crediting him with numerous accomplishments that are not historically attributable to him, obscure the image and understanding of the man. While the survey was being launched, Washington brought on board the team for the development of the federal city a young man that we met briefly at the beginning of episode 1.8, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant. If you have ever rode the metro in modern-day Washington, D.C. and stopped at L'Enfant Plaza, you may have wondered why such a major hub in the system was named after Monsieur L'Enfant. Well, L'Enfant is credited with developing the plan for the new national capital. However, he ultimately would not see the project through, and you will not find his name on the engraved map prepared of the new planned city. To understand L'Enfant's rise and fall in the first Washington term, we need to take a moment to look at the man himself. Pierre-Charles L'Enfant began life at Versailles, the seat of the French royal court. His father served the king as an artist, and L'Enfant would ultimately follow his father in an artistic career. However, he would take a detour from this path in 1777, when he traveled with other French compatriots recruited by Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais to fight in the American Revolution. His artistic background would prove to be valuable in this move to the newly minted United States, as he was soon commissioned by the Marquis de Lafayette to paint a portrait of General George Washington himself, thus allowing him to make what would prove to be the most crucial acquaintance of his career. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. As we've already noted, as the discussion of the capital city began in 1789, L'Enfant turned to the first president of the United States to lobby for the position as architect of the new city. Certainly, he already had an extensive portfolio of work, having worked on renovations of the New York City Hall to become Federal Hall for use by the U.S. Congress during its tenure in that city, along with having staged the elaborate Federal Parade in New York in 1787 to celebrate the ratification of the Constitution and other public displays. Not only was Washington familiar firsthand with L'Enfant's artistic skill, but he also seems to have felt that L'Enfant was someone with whom he could work closely with on this project with which Washington intended to be directly involved. Nominally, the project would fall into Secretary of State Jefferson's wheelhouse, but in practice, Washington would communicate back and forth directly with L'Enfant rather than having their brainstorming filtered through proxies. As we also discussed previously, Jefferson had his own particular thoughts on the new federal city, and it would quickly become apparent to all involved in the process that Jefferson and L'Enfant had two widely different visions. Jefferson, quote, favored building a small capital, perhaps an acropolis such as he had designed for the state of Virginia. For L'Enfant, who had grown up in the shadow of Versailles, this was preposterous. 
In L'Enfant's vision, quote, his federal city was to be the grand embodiment of a great nation yet to be. Even beyond ideological differences, L'Enfant invoked friction with Jefferson as well as the district's commissioners with his personality. Robert Seale, in his two-part history of the White House structure, asserts that, quote, L'Enfant could be high-handed and, apparently having money of his own from France, was fiercely independent and sometimes the peacock. L'Enfant's attitude toward the Secretary of State became as haughty as it was toward the commissioners. Jefferson attempted to collaborate with him, sending him ideas from Parisian architecture with which L'Enfant would have been familiar for use as models for public buildings in the new city. But L'Enfant's vision was his own. Beginning in the spring of 1791, L'Enfant roamed about the landscape of the yet-to-be-built capital city. As described by Seal, quote, thick forests of oak, sycamore, and cedar yielded to rail-enclosed fields, now being cut with the first plows of spring. L'Enfant estimated heights and distances. He sketched and made notes. Hills and plains contrasted sharply and inspired dramatic planning. He traced the two principal creeks, Goose Creek and Rock Creek, to their sources in the heights and imagined fountains, waters running from springs to form ponds. There must be public gardens, monumental architecture, and streets that reached, like his visions, to far distant points of view. He would spend his days roaming about, quote, and his nights working late at Souter's Fountain Inn, dreaming up palatial buildings, including a palace for the president. When Washington came to the area in March 1791 to negotiate land deals, L'Enfant would take Washington about the district on a tour, and the two would talk multiple times at Souter's about L'Enfant's vision. Washington would then return in June, as he returned to Philadelphia from his tour of the southern states, and the two would meet again and, joined by surveyor Andrew Ellicott, do another tour of the sites that L'Enfant had selected for the principal buildings of the capital. The only objection Washington seems to have made was for the site selected for the president's palace. Washington, quote, preferred another spot just to the west, one which would raise the building higher and bring it to the edge of the hilly range above the river plain. Though not on a precise center axis looking downriver, as was the position L'Enfant had selected, the place still provided a magnificent river view. With that decided, and with his having the president's ear directly, L'Enfant seemingly had carte blanche to proceed however he wished. However, others would start to work against him. One of the problems with L'Enfant's imperious nature towards those who were working with him on the project was the fact that he had no official role. Washington had tapped him to be the creative mind behind the plans for the federal city without actually providing him with a specified position with authority invested in it. This would cause resentment with the commissioners who were legally responsible for overseeing the construction of the federal city, and they would clash with L'Enfant often. L'Enfant protested the planned public auction of city lots planned for October 1791, saying that it was premature and would only benefit local speculators while, quote, interfering with his plan of encouraging the simultaneous development of a series of neighborhoods. Ultimately, L'Enfant would prove to be in the right, and the sale would only net the government $2,000 with 35 lots sold. However, as these public sales were necessary to provide funds for the construction of public buildings, both Washington and the commissioners moved to proceed with them, but recognized the need for an engraved map as an illustration of what those who invested in plots of land would ultimately receive, with the commissioners blaming the lack of such detailed plans as being the cause of the disappointing first sale. 
L'Enfant, ever the dilettante, dragged his feet, instead writing to Washington of his plan, quote, to proceed slowly by zones or neighborhoods to settle the city, thus ensuring even orderly development. L'Enfant was summoned to Philadelphia to report to Washington and Jefferson and to facilitate an engraving of his plan for the city. The summer of 1791 and L'Enfant's journey to Philadelphia would prove to be his downfall. Jefferson began corresponding directly with the commissioners, then, seemingly with Washington's approval, set up a meeting for him and Madison with them in Georgetown on their way home to Virginia. Following the meeting, and upon Lafon's return to the site of the federal city in October, the commissioners increasingly began to assert their authority. Lafon resorted to, quote, ranting and raving and badgering his friends for support, which they were increasingly unwilling to give. And by February 1792, he had even lost the support of Washington after requesting a budget of $1.2 million and a workforce comprising of over a 1,000 men to begin work on the Capitol and the Presidential Palace. Washington had already written to Commissioner David Stewart in November 1791 in reply to Stewart's letter complaining about L'Enfant that, quote, it is much to be regretted, however common the case is, that men who possess talents which fit them for peculiar purposes should almost invariably be under the influence of untoward dispositions or possess of some other disqualification by which they plague all those with whom they are concerned. But I did not expect to have met with such perverseness in Major L'Enfant as his late conduct exhibited. At the time of the letter, Washington attempted to assert L'Enfant's talents and promised Stuart that he would speak to him about what was required of him. But by February, he had had enough. At Washington's direction, Jefferson wrote a letter to L'Enfant on February 26th, dismissing him from service to the nation. His blueprint for the city would be for the most part retained, as it was one preferred by Washington, but it would take over a century before L'Enfant received recognition for his role in the crafting of the nation's capital city. As the nation's capital was coming together, so too was developing what would come to be the major industry of the new city, namely politics. The run-up to the election in 1792 found both the Jeffersonian faction and pro-administration forces launching attacks in print. Jefferson maintained a degree of separation from his supporters' public arguments as he allowed surrogates like Madison, Attorney General Edmund Randolph, and Philip Freneau do the dirty work of writing attack pieces. But Hamilton dove headlong into the mud and muck. In the summer of 1792, he would write attack pieces under various pseudonyms, including but not limited to Caesar, Catullus, and Scourge. In one essay, he wrote that, quote, Mr. Jefferson has hitherto been distinguished as the quiet, modest, retiring philosopher, as the plain, simple, unambitious Republican. He shall not now, for the first time, be regarded as the intriguing incendiary, the aspiring, turbulent competitor. In a rather bold move, Hamilton even submitted an essay to Freneau's National Gazette about a Jefferson cabal that was vying for power in the next election. To Freneau's credit, he actually did print the essay. For all of his work, though, Hamilton was the exception rather than the rule of what we are beginning to become more justified in calling Federalist circles. Most of the folks in his faction, as noted by historian Forrest MacDonald, quote, viewed seduction of the voters as dangerous demagoguery, inevitably leading to tyranny, and had no stomach for it. The Hamiltonians believed that it was enough to govern well, and they trusted that the voters would recognize their services and respond accordingly. 
Thus, far from being the hard-boiled realists they fancied themselves as being, the Hamiltonians did not even understand the first maxim of popular politics, that the object of the game is to win. Jefferson would not let these public attacks rest. Indeed, he brought the matter up with Washington himself, after Washington, having decided to stand again for re-election, wrote to his Secretary of State in August in an attempt to bring about a reconciliation between Jefferson and Hamilton. Jefferson's reply on September 9th represents one of the closest instances that Jefferson came to openly challenging the revered first president. He begins by asserting that, quote, Though I take to myself no more than my share of the general observations of your letter, yet I am so desirous ever that you should know the whole truth and believe no more than the truth. Then goes on to outline how he felt himself abused, and I will assert that I am directly quoting here, quote, duped by the Secretary of the Treasury, and made a tool for forwarding his schemes, not then sufficiently understood by me. He attributes to Hamilton, quote, cabals with members of the legislature to force down his own system, which Jefferson pronounces, quote, inconsistent with the honor and interest of our country. This system, Jefferson asserted, quote, flowed from principles adverse to liberty and was calculated to undermine and demolish the republic. And after throwing in some criticism of John Fenno and the Gazette of the United States, while of course dismissing any responsibility for Philip Fernot and the National Gazette, reminds Washington of his desire to retire, but asserts that, quote, I will not suffer my retirement to be clouded by the slanders of a man whose history, from the moment at which history can stoop to notice him, is a tissue of machinations against the liberty of the country, which has not only received and given him breath, but heaped its honors on his head. Ouch. No love lost there. To be fair, Jefferson does have some justification for being so upset. In his discussions with George Beckwith, the unofficial British envoy, and later George Hammond, the official British minister to the U.S., Hamilton had undermined Jefferson's authority in negotiating with a foreign power. One of the key issues left over from the Revolution was that Britain and the Treaty of Paris had agreed to provide compensation for slaves that the British had brought into their ranks and transported back with them after the war. Hamilton saw the issue of the British abandoning their forts in the Northwest Territory as more critical. So in his discussions with Hammond, he said that if they would leave the forts, they might be able to compromise on the compensation issue something that Hammond made sure to bring up with Jefferson in a future discussion when Jefferson again pressed on compensation. For someone who expected to come into office and act as a de facto prime minister, Jefferson's realization that he didn't even have supremacy in the cabinet in the field of foreign relations, which was by law his responsibility, must have been a huge blow to Jefferson's ego. This was a low point in Jefferson's career, and he was honestly just ready to go. He had first broached the subject of his departure from the cabinet in a meeting with Washington on February 28, 1792, but Washington convinced him to stay. As the year went on and Jefferson joined the ranks to convince Washington to stay, Washington would turn the arguments on Jefferson to assert that if Jefferson felt that Washington needed to stay as president as the nation needed him, then he was saying that he needed Jefferson to stay for the good of the nation, and going so far as to defend the administration's financial policies, as indeed they were put into place in his name, Washington's, not Hamilton's. Washington did take a light touch to his defense, though, as he truly did want Jefferson to remain. As seen in the case of L'Enfant, 
When Washington brought someone into his professional family, he stuck by them until they did something to hinder the work that Washington deemed a priority. Indeed, on September 9, 1792, Hamilton wrote to Washington suggesting that he remove Jefferson from his post, asserting that, quote, the period is not remote when the public good will require substitutes for the differing members of your administration. Washington was not willing to go that far just yet with any of the members of his administration. Though Hamilton and Jefferson's feud was troublesome, the work was still getting done, and neither had stepped over the line. Little could he have imagined, though, what developments lay next. If Jefferson and his supporters could not take Hamilton out by appealing to Washington, then they were determined to do what they could in Congress. With Representative William Branch Giles taking the lead, the House began in December 1792 demanding, quote, a strict accounting of the Treasury Department's foreign loans. Hamilton delayed providing the information, as he knew that there was room for criticism in his handling of the nation's finances. Unlike so many financial scandals, and indeed what the Jeffersonians felt was happening, Hamilton's shady accounting was for the good of the nation, rather than for his own personal benefit. Basically, Hamilton had used foreign loans to repay domestic debt, including government loans from the Bank of the United States. This was, in fact, illegal, and Jefferson and his supporters thought that this money was going into the bank to benefit speculators who had colluded with Hamilton in the scheme. However, it seems that Hamilton's intentions were just to pay back the public debt by any means necessary, including with foreign loans. These accusations, which we'll get back to in a minute, could not have come at a worse time for Hamilton, as his affair with Maria Reynolds was on the verge of going public. As we discussed last episode, Hamilton kept up his affair with Maria, now with the tactic approval of her husband. James and Maria Reynolds would work together through the spring and summer of 1792 to extort more money from Hamilton by playing with his emotions in a drama that makes a soap opera look tame. Finally, Hamilton had enough and called off the affair in May. The Reynoldses would try a few more times, but it seems that Hamilton was finally over the spell of Maria. By Hamilton's own admission, it wasn't because of any guilt at cheating on his wife, who was pregnant at the time, or necessarily a loss of affection for Maria. Rather, it was the fear of being caught, as he had what was seemingly an accidental encounter with an associate, Jacob Klingman, at the Reynolds house that Hamilton wondered might have been arranged in order to further the extortion scheme. He might just have gotten away with the affair without anyone being any of the wiser if James Reynolds and Klingman had not been charged, quote, with defrauding the U.S. government of $400 and prosecuted by none other than the Comptroller of the Treasury, Oliver Walcott, Jr., who was, in fact, a Hamilton protege and had gotten his position at the urging of Hamilton over another candidate that Jefferson had recommended to Washington. From jail, Reynolds wrote to Hamilton for assistance, but to no avail. Meanwhile, Klingman, upon being released on bail, went to speak with Representative Frederick Muhlenberg of Pennsylvania to see if he could use his influence to work out a deal with the Treasury Department. Hamilton and Walcott finally agreed to a deal with the money being returned, and, after other conditions were met, Reynolds and Klingman were freed. However, the more Muhlenberg spoke with Klingman over the time that all of this was going on, the more hints he got from Klingman that Klingman knew something damaging about Hamilton. Finally, Klingman told Muhlenberg that Hamilton and Reynolds had conspired in speculative activities and Hamilton had given Reynolds money to speculate with. Muhlenberg then consulted with two members of the Virginia delegation, Senator James Monroe 
and Representative Abraham Venable. By this point, Klingman gave Muhlenberg some unsigned notes from Hamilton to James Reynolds that had been supplied by none other than Maria Reynolds, who was also meeting with Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin and sharing with him the tale of her love affair with Hamilton. Still with me here? It got to be a pretty tangled web pretty quick. If it helps in keeping track of who's who, I've posted a flowchart on the show notes for this episode. Anyway, the trio from Congress visited with James Reynolds in his jail cell, and Reynolds would only make allusions that, quote, he had a person in high office in his power and has had a long time past. Thus, Muhlenberg and Monroe went to visit Maria Reynolds, who only told them that there had been some business relations between Hamilton and her husband. Meanwhile, James Reynolds was released from prison and sent a messenger to Hamilton. The two met shortly after sunrise the next day, and though we don't know what exactly transpired between the two of them, James Reynolds left the meeting and hightailed it out of Philadelphia. He had been scheduled to meet with Monroe and Venable in the late morning, but didn't show, and his absence heightened their suspicions of Hamilton's wrongdoing. So much had already been bandied around in the papers and in anti-administration circles about Hamilton, it was easy to see how they might have to wonder if the rumors were true and Hamilton was engaged in official wrongdoing to his own benefit. They were initially going to go straight to Washington with what they had learned thus far, but instead decided to meet with Hamilton to lay the charges before him and give him an opportunity to explain. Thus, on the morning of December 15th, Muhlenberg, Venable, and Monroe walked into Alexander Hamilton's office and confronted him with what they had learned thus far about his, quote, very improper connection with James Reynolds. He was initially enraged, but then realized that the jig was up. He invited them, along with Comptroller Walcott, to his house that evening, where he would explain all. When they arrived, he told them the entire story, his affair with Maria, the confrontation with James Reynolds, the extortion, everything. He provided evidence in the form of letters and gave such detailed accounts that the three members of Congress realized that they had inadvertently uncovered an extramarital affair, not a scandal of corruption in official life. They then apologized for the intrusion and promised that they would keep all the details secret. But then, you knew that was coming, didn't you? Two days after the meeting, Hamilton asked the trio for copies of the documents they had shown him when they were laying out the facts of their investigation. Monroe, either by plan or without thinking of the potential consequences, gave the documents to the clerk of the House of Representatives, John Beckley, to make copies. Now, Beckley was a devoted Jeffersonian, and thus, he made copies for Hamilton, then went on to make copies for Jefferson and Madison, to whom he sent those along. They likely went filed away somewhere, stored for a rainy day when they might prove useful. This isn't the last of this saga, believe me. On top of the -the behind-the-scenes scandal was, as mentioned previously, an official inquiry from Congress into Hamilton's conduct, which some before and since have traced back to Madison and Jefferson. Taking the lead on it was William Branch Giles, a representative from Virginia. At this point, Giles was described as, quote, only 30 years old, but already known as a fierce debater. As congressional members started to notice a discrepancy in the request of the Treasury Department for requesting authorization of a loan of $2 million to repay a loan from the Bank of the United States that should have been $200,000, Jeffersonian Republicans started to smell scandal and cry foul. Thus, Giles on January 23rd introduced five resolutions calling for a full investigation, 
Now, by this point, Hamilton had already provided all relevant information to the Senate in mid-January in response to a resolution from that body. But Giles, both with his resolutions and his oratory, started to get attention and work up the court of public opinion. Fisher Ames surveyed the scene in January and wrote that, quote, Virginia moves in a solid column, and the discipline of the party is as severe as the Prussian. Deserters are not spared. Madison is become a desperate party leader and I'm not sure of his stopping at any ordinary point of extremity. In response to the resolutions of January, Hamilton sent detailed report after detailed report to the House. However, instead of downplaying the issue, he ramped up in counterattack, asserting in the first report that, quote, the resolutions to which I am to answer were not moved without a pretty copious display of the reasons on which they were founded. These reasons are before the public, through the channel of the press. They are of a nature to excite attention, to beget alarms, to inspire doubts. Deductions of a very extraordinary complexion may, without forcing the sense, be drawn from them. In response, Giles introduced nine resolutions on February 27, 1793, denouncing the Secretary of the Treasury as having violated federal law and, in essence, calling for his removal. Though there was a lengthy debate through the remainder of the session, ultimately all nine resolutions would be defeated, and all of the administration's leaders would move forward into the second term. Conflict in the construction of the federal city, drama in Philadelphia, the world of the Washington administration was becoming ever more complex and ever more troublesome. But what about the man at the top? How had the past four years left him to go into another term? I mentioned his first health scare in 1789, way back in episode 1.3, then his second one in 1790, back in episode 1.6. There is no denying that Washington was getting older, and that the stress of office was weighing on him. He was about to continue in an office of which he was tired and ready from which to retire. It wasn't all misery for Washington at this time in his life, though. His weekly levies may have been an awkward ceremony, but he enjoyed attending the First Lady's tea parties. As described by Washington biographer James Thomas Flexner, quote, The ladies, having no more elegant presidential receptions to attend, did not spare the hairdressers and costumers. Washington, who enjoyed the company of the fair, circulated gaily without sword or hat. He also enjoyed the company of his family. Martha, in particular, took on an increasingly important role as the controversies and divisiveness ramped up. As noted by Martha Washington biographer Patricia Brady, quote, To see his wife happy and contented always made George happy as well, because he depended so much on her to keep up his own spirits. Whenever she was unhappy or depressed, he became uneasy, which translated to worried sick in his lexicon. Luckily for George, Martha was typically one quick to recover from bouts of melancholy. Cassandra Good asserted in her recent paper delivered at the Shear, that's Society for Historians of the Early American Republic, annual conference this year on the emotional work of the Washingtons as the first first family, that in her research, it seemed that Martha managed the stress of public life much better than George. While neither much cared for the scrutiny, Martha could adopt a veneer of gentility and cheerfulness at all times when in public while there were folks who commented that it seemed that George had to manage his anger and unhappiness. Even those like Jefferson, who didn't think highly of her, would note, quote, the goodness of her heart. Adding to the pleasure of both of the elder Washingtons 
was the presence of Martha's grandchildren, Wash and Nellie Custis, who, as mentioned way back in episode 1.2, they had taken in to raise. Much akin to modern family excursions, they would take the children on trips to Charles Wilson Peale's Museum in Philadelphia, which was one of the first museums in the nation, focused more on natural history, though also containing, quote, his, Peale's, own paintings of national heroes. They would also make trips back to Mount Vernon during the summer, while Congress was in recess, where they could be surrounded by family, at times having upwards of 10 Washington children relations running about the mansion. But they would note a sense of peace and contentment upon their return to their home on the banks of the Potomac. Though they would have their family time in Philadelphia, it was never the same for the Washingtons. I recently had the pleasure of going to visit the site of the President's House in Philadelphia, and it helped me to better visualize in my mind this house that, while large for the time, was still not large enough to accommodate the President, his family, his servants, and in Washington's case, slaves, and the President's office staff, as well as serve as the venue for official meetings, receptions, dinners, the greeting of delegations, and all the other events surrounding the presidency, in addition to being a home especially when one would presume that, as the government and the nation grew, the needs would only increase. During Washington's tenure, between 25 and 30 people would live together in the 45 feet wide and 52 feet deep house, with three floors and an attic space. There was little privacy to be had for any of the home's residents, and now it looked as if they would possibly be there for another four years. And thus, on March 4, 1793, in the Senate Chamber of Congress Hall in Philadelphia, pictures of which I will include on the blog post for this episode, George Washington delivered his brief inaugural address, took the oath of office, and began what I imagine he already realized would likely be a turbulent second term as president. The discussion of the arrangements for the second inaugural proved to be one of the few times that Jefferson and Hamilton would see eye to eye. Both felt that the event should be more low-key, and the cabinet ultimately recommended that Washington travel from the president's house to the Senate chamber, quote, without form, attended by such gentlemen as he choose. Washington chose to ride alone in his carriage on the 4th. I'll try not to read too much into this, but it certainly seems a fitting image to have in our mind of a reluctant president who felt increasingly isolated from the developing political trends of the time, but who, as always, was willing to do his duty and serve as the figure by which the nation would hang together, despite the expense it would carry for his personal contentment. This seems like a good place for us to leave off today. While I may have to go back briefly to the first term in case there's anything that I might have missed that proves crucial to the narrative, I'm effectively considering this our transition point into Washington's second term. There's much to cover and many more episodes to come, beginning next time with an episode I'd like to call It's Not Easy Being Neutral. Please remember that if you have any questions about Washington's life or presidency, whether it's something you'd like more clarification on or that I wasn't able to go into as much detail about, I'm looking for questions to use to craft a listener questions episode at the end of the Washington series. Send those questions as well as any comments you may have to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com or reach out via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or via Twitter at presidencies89. Special thanks, as always, to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. Andrew is a pleasure to work with, so if you, like me, need his able audio editing skills on your next audio projects, drop him a line at andrew at foncook, 
That's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. If you'd like to see those pictures of Congress Hall, as well as other photos from my recent trip to Philadelphia, they, along with the sources used in this episode, can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Past episodes can be found on the blog, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. As always, thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.